0: Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking.
1: Hello, Tom. Back with you. Did you fill your water bottle back in?
2: Did you? Nope. Nope, I did not. I still have. I only have like ten or twelve ounces, so
1: that's only enough for ten minutes. You're gonna to have to take a break. <laughs> Come back to us. I know how that works. And today we are joined by Terry Slattery and his massive number of books in the background. Although he claims to have thrown a lot of books away, I don't know about that, Terry. Well, if I believe you. <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> The so ones over there are whittled down from what it used to be.
1: <laughs> Terry, where are you? You're outside D.C. someplace, right, still?
0: Yes, yeah, Annapolis, Maryland. Okay. And, and it's a cool rainy day here today. Oh, well, there you go.
1: And we're being joined by Scott Robin. Robin? Robin? I don't know how to say it. Rob
3: on. Like robe putting on. a robe on. Oh, yep. see,
1: I'm so terrible at that. It's okay. And Scott is someplace other than home on a Friday night, and I feel sorry for him.
3: Thank you. It'll be okay. I'm <laughs> I'm uh I'm getting dinner out of it, so can't be that bad.
1: Well, I don't know. It depends on where dinner is. That's <laughs> <Like> true. If- <laughs> Like if, it's, if like it's in a Waffle House or a little pancake place that shares a parking lot with a bad hotel, you probably aren't getting any kind of good dinner out of it. <laughs> Just
3: saying. That would be a change in plans. <laughs> uh, so,
1: I have determined that any restaurants that share parking lots with hotels or motels, the quality of the restaurant is directly dependent on the quality of the hotel. The two go in and in. If you wouldn't stay in the hotel, don't don't eat in the restaurant. Just saying.
3: I think it's a good rule of thumb. Yep.
2: Russ's Friday Road Warrior wisdom. We should have a we should have a recurring uh, you know recording on that. War. Yeah, we should. <laughs> the segment.
3: It's a yeah. new a new segment a new for segment. the hedge. That's right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so we were talking about uh, automation on the hedge a couple of episodes ago, uh, maybe four or five now, depending on. Uh, when this gets published versus when that gets published. and Scott, Yeah, one
0: number 193, I think, was the one that <laughs> instigated this. Yes,
1: <laughs> and I think this is 206 or something. I don't know. Things go fast here at the hedge. Um, well, it's also the end of the year. So as always, Tom and I are trying to record through the end of January as quickly as we can so that we actually get a break during December. And it has never worked before, right, Tom? It's never.
2: Yeah, it's never. never but worked. I think this year it's going to.
1: You I'm think optimistic. So? I don't know. Yeah. You're being optimistic. Yeah. Are you? Okay. Well. Okay. Well, we'll see. And so Terry wanted to continue the conversation, which is good. It's cool, actually. Um, we like continuing conversations. So Terry, I mean, I guess we start with the original conversation was around why doesn't why hasn't automation taken off? What's going on that automation hasn't taken off? So some of the things we covered about were things like the vendors aren't giving us a, a consistent model and other things like this. Um, so let's go on your reasons, Terry, because these are interesting. Uh,
0: well, I, I started off with a bunch of, of observations about the conversation that went on in that particular episode. And then I got to looking at it and I, I did a presentation at Enterprise Connect this early this year. And I looked back at that presentation, refreshed my memory on it, And there are actually four higher level reasons other than the ones that were discussed in that particular podcast that make automation difficult. And I I felt like it was important to, to surface those and make sure everyone is aware of what those, those high level, basically just four things. What are those four things and how can you start to work around them?
1: I like the number four. By the way, I, you know, I do my entire network model on the, on the rule of four. So I like, I
0: like. Not seven, huh?
1: Not seven. No, I'm not a seven (laughs) dude. I'm a four dude. (laughs) You'll have to go, you'll have to go read my articles over at Packet Pushers to understand that little joke, but.
2: (laughs) Yeah, seven, seven is for dip. It's not for network models.
1: (laughs)
0: Now, it was interesting. I'm, I was sitting here and I'm, I'm taking a class on network automation programming, uh, Network Academy's class, just for fun. Uh, I've officially retired, so um, I'm taking this class for fun. And one of the suggestions was to use ChatGPT for things. So while I was waiting for the, the uh, Zoom session to start here, I was like, ah, what are the top four reasons organizations have difficulty adopting? What, what are the top four reasons that organizations have and difficulty in adopting network automation? And so ChatGPT came back with a list that is pretty familiar, legacy infrastructure, skill gap, cultural resistance, and complexity and security concerns. So Mm -hmm. I I thought that was pretty good. My top one is culture change because culture change is very, very hard.
1: People are much harder to work with with than technology. In fact, there used to be this cartoon that I had on my wall, and I don't know if I could still find it again, but it was someone talking to their supervisor, and the the supervisor said to them, their manager, boss, whatever, and said to them, "You need to learn more soft skills." And they said, "Soft skills? I got into computers so I wouldn't have to deal with people." <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's kind of the way. I-
0: People and the supervisor hard. had pointy hair. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yep. That's right. Yeah. Dilbert, Dilbert in the corner. Yep. yep. So, so, so culture change is hard. Yeah, keep going.
0: Yeah, so there's that, and it's just a communication between people and making sure that they're all communicating and, and understand what the other party is saying. So that whole thing wrapped up together is, is my top one. It was number four. It was number three out of the chat GPT, but in in my book, it's number one because unless you get everybody on board um, as Scott McNeely said many, many years ago, all the wood behind one arrowhead, if, if people aren't pulling all in the same direction, it's not effective. It's not an effective organization.
1: So would you say that from experience or is this something that you're observing just like, you know, if this is a generic I've seen this around, or like is this like I've actually seen this in real life?
0: Um a bit of both.
1: Okay. Interesting. Okay.
0: So I, I find that the culture change is often why automation projects fail. Um I I personally saw a case where we we did a bunch of automation, but The organization culturally was, oh, we have to go so fast. We have to go so fast. We can't afford to take time out to do automation and automate stuff. And so they got one data center configured and they had three other data centers that needed to be configured.
1: (laughs) Yeah. But they were going so fast.
0: We have to go really fast. And they got one data center done. But it was one of these high availability type systems, financial systems. And it's like. Uh, guys, there's a big hole here in your infrastructure.
2: <laughs> so I, like, I I yeah, agree that that culture change. Yeah, that's that's definitely the bigger one. But I don't think I don't quite agree that everyone has to be on board. If everyone has to be on board, nothing, no initiative ever will ever succeed at all. Well, but yeah, two people do have to be on board, and some, not all, that, but some of the individual contributors have to
3: be on board. Right. Enough exactly. of the right people. Yep. And right. and you touch on this later. I don't want to steal your thunder, but you know, lack of commitment from the top and leadership, not just from the top, but from, from within multiple layers. I think that ties into this. And, and I think you called that out, too. But your, your emphasis on the tyranny of the urgent in your data center example, um, what else? Are there things about network engineering culture
1: That's that are particular
3: was, yeah. here? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would say, you know, the pride of being a CLI jockey is is one hallmark of the culture that we're talking about that uh is a factor here i don't want to make it sound like you know disproportionately the cause but i'm interested to hear what else the rest of you think too about network engineering culture
1: yeah i I do think it's the i think it is partially the pride of being a cli jockey i passed that certification where i had to type into the things really really fast And I don't really denigrate that certification because, or whatever it is, because that's what I'm known for is being able to get up at two o'clock in the morning and solve the problem on the CLI in five minutes or less. And I think that's, that's a definite thing that That, happens.
2: That's definitely a a hero culture, like one, one individual kind of saving the day and you can't build, you can't build correct automation uh, on one person. You have to, people have to play nice with each other to build to build real, correct automation Mm here. Cultural is is antithetical to automation, I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And you get the you you get the CLI jockey that says, I can fix this in five minutes with the CLI, Mm -hmm. and it'll take me an hour if I use the automation system because I have to go check out the code, look at it, make the change, check it back in, go through uh, a simulation and testing. (laughs) Oh, why do I need all this stuff? Because I'm making this simple change. And that and that change, by the way, here, another example from the past. That change is I'm going to glue two um, MPLS domains together. Uh, turns out that they were both originating default route, and so part of the network became disconnected from the internet. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I,
1: I think another problem of it is is fear, though, too. Fear, not just fear of losing your job, of, of working your way out of a job, which I know people have but also fear that you're gonna lose control. Like there's, there's a level of control when you're a CLI jockey, when you're just in there messing around with the CLI. You do things, the thing happens. You can look at the output and say that thing happened. Like I kinda know like what happened there. When I go to automation, it's not so simple. I kind of lose, I'm like one step away from the control point any longer. And I think there's a, there's a massive amount of fear around that too. But I don't know, Terry, Scott, any of y'all seen that? Well, I,
3: that's a that's a definite factor. And I think the rapid rise in the last year of Chad GPT and AI tools is pouring some kerosene on that fire, rightly or wrongly. Um, that's another, it's a new unknown. And it raises, it raises the concern of many that here's another thing that could disrupt Disrupt this job, disrupt my career. So that plays in here too. I'm not willing to put a percentage against it, but it's a it's a log on the fire.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I can see it, right? I, I don't, I've not, I don't think I've experienced it in the real world, but I can see people having that perspective or that set of problems. Um, I think and- it
3: fuels it fuels passive aggression. I think it what it really does is it, it uh, increases um, the weight of feet di- uh, exponentially for foot dragging. Um, you know that's why we probably don't hear about it talked about front and center very much.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm building labs right now and I don't automate my labs because it's just easier just to throw them together. I'm only dealing with four or five routers like who really cares, right? And I it's the immediate feedback, right. I put something in, I test it. I don't have to work with anything else. And then I imagine that if I put this into production, what I'm working on right now, eventually, which it probably will eventually go into production someday, but it's, I'm not going to be the person doing it. I'm not writing the automation. That if you were the person writing the automation, there's a big, big, big thing saying inside of you, it's already working in the lab. Why should I go back and build automation to build what I've already built in the lab troubleshoot it all do all of that work when it's running right? I think there's I think there's something in that space as well um, that may be a culture change issue.
3: I'll throw I'll throw one other item out on this one um, and and be a little uh, self-deprecating. Another thing that we tend to do is dive straight into the details which I took us on on this point and Terry started this conversation out with, Hey, I've got four high level things that I think are, are the real reasons. So I'm, I'm willing to hand the, uh, the talking stick back to Terry for the high level items.
1: (laughs) Well, no, I mean, no, but we have, we're only at 14 minutes. You're okay.
3: (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm not just trying to manage time, but it was an opportunity to show we love bits and bytes, right? And we, we we love, Most of us love seven layers, Russ. I know you like four, but. uh,
1: Too bad. That's too bad.
3: People don't need these stupid protocols anyway.
1: (laughs) Uh, Mine comes out to six anyway, so it's okay. It's just six pairs. So, you know. So the next one you have in your area was about adopting a network automation architecture. And I think that's interesting because that goes back to what Scott was just saying about we love bits and bytes. And we don't do as well with architectural level thinking.
0: Yeah. But if you don't have an architecture, you don't know what the plan is. You don't know when you have finished, if there's no goal and your goal is ill defined, how do you know when you're finished? So, So having an architecture allows you to look at it and go, okay, so do we have all the elements here that are necessary for a good network automation architecture? Um, it's it's pretty obvious that we need a single source of truth, but what other functions do we need?
2: I think it's kind of funny that single source of truth is like this huge talking point. Everyone wants to talk about it, but there's all the other things. That, you know, how? Are, what's the southbound interface? What's nobody's talking about that? Like what what's this? What's that? Like all these other elements of the architecture. I find it entertaining that um, you know, as soon as someone talks about network automation, it's like single source of truth, and it's like no, there's <laughs> there's so much more to it.
0: Exactly. And, uh, I took a look around, um, uh, because we have architectures for a whole bunch of other things. And, uh, it turns out that network to code has a pretty interesting blog that, that has an example of a network automation architectures. The first one I'd seen, um, I wouldn't be surprised at finding that there are others out there as well. And be interesting to, to put together a collection of, okay, here's, here's network to codes architecture. Here's somebody else's architecture. Um, How are they different? What are the strengths and weaknesses of each? That kind of analysis would be kind of interesting, I think.
1: I've seen them inside companies. Rarely ever have I seen a network architecture, a network automation architecture outside the four walls of a company. They seem to always be within a company. And they almost are never always followed. And I often think that, like Tom said, single source of truth. Like, honestly, to me, single source of truth is not like the end-all, be-all of network, uh, of network automation. I think we, right. really, we, yeah. we really overemphasize it. And I, I always say the single source of truth is the network. I don't know, maybe that's wrong, but like, what is the network actually doing right now? That may not be what I intend, but that's what the truth is. And so, <laughs> and
3: so, you have a big distributed database of self-documenting, the self-documenting network behavior, right? It's a, yeah. called the collection of all the configs that are deployed and in service right now. Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, I, uh,
3: so, yeah, go ahead, Tom. No, go
2: ahead. No, Scott, no, Scott, you go
3: So, so, Terry, this is a really interesting point in terms of, you know, it, it kind of makes a lot of sense that a company that exists to deliver de- deliver professional services, you know, design and build networks for hire would publish an architecture like this. And doesn't that kind of harmonize with your comment, Russ, that I, you said, comp, you've seen them within companies. I assume you mean v, network equipment vendors.
1: No, no, not no. Even inside, like when Customers. I worked for LinkedIn, okay. we we had an architecture for network automation. Sure. Not that it was right. necessarily followed in all cases. I work at Akamai. We have an architecture for network automation. Well, we have more than one, shall I say, <laughs>
3: sure yeah fair, fair enough so not just vendors hiding their secret sauce so to speak yeah. but uh in in all the conversations that i've had preparing for the network automation forum event in uh in denver in november this this class of of company all these pro services companies are really important third leg of the stool right of course you have the solution providers like the network equipment vendors, like the automation platform providers. That's that's one leg. Another leg, of course, is the customers, you know, everyone trying to to do this in their networks. And then the the pro services companies, you know, like network to code like others. I won't name names because I don't want to sound gratuitous, but a lot of them have come and stepped up and even sponsored the conference. they're a really, really important part of of this ecosystem, and I think are the key to driving, uh, or a important key to driving network automation. Uh,
2: mm-hmm. I I was also going to say I think that talking about architecture is important because it'll it it's what allows you to be independent of uh, networking vendors uh, in terms of tooling. Because if you're not if you don't have an architecture if you don't know uh, how you're planning to structure the application that is network automation. Uh, then you don't know what to do. A vendor will come and say, here's the tool. And you'll say, oh, here's the tool. Another vendor will come and say, here's the tool. And you'll just always be talking about tools. And you will never be talking about what, you know, the architecture, the thing you're trying to, the actual business uh, value that you're trying to build.
3: I really like I like this in the context of begin with the end in mind. Right, Terry, you, you said it right. differently. Yep. Uh, yep. If I don't have an architecture, if I don't know what all the logical components are that I need to assemble. How do I know when I'm done?
0: So. And how do you know what the next critical piece is in the, in the sure. path? It's like, okay, so I'm at a certain point and in the uh, maturity model, what's the next element out of the architecture I should go build? Mm-hmm. There are some things right. that better preclude others.
1: Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I wonder sometimes that not building architectures is not is, is also a cultural issue again we like details.
0: well yeah that's why i had culture as number 1 <laughs> yeah
1: because, because we don't we don't like to abstract things we don't like abstractions we like details and architectures are by their very nature abstract and we wander around going what's the point of that like it's just you're talking about whatever whatever who cares we're not you know we don't think in terms of like the larger picture and making it all fit a lot of times, because we're just not comfortable with the abstraction levels. So misses- uh, you know, along
3: uh, along those lines, um, I wonder. You know, there's a lot of us who came into the field um, before there was a lot of structure and discipline around <laughs> building networks, and I don't want to uh, make comments about. anyone's level of experience in years here, Uh, I will let each of you, each of you. (laughs) Well, look, I, I came into this in the early nineties and I was a kid in a candy shop. This was awesome. And playing with routers and hubs and then switches and just figuring it out as you go. There there was so much of that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a, a game that started to pay really well, <laughs> um, and certain people on this call took took pity and had mercy on on others and hired them um, to teach others how to do this, um, for which I will always be grateful, Terry. But uh, you know, I think many of us learn this in a really unstructured environment, and that feeds right into the architecture. You know, that's a class I skipped in college. Um, let me just assign IP addresses and get this link up. There's, right. there's, there's a lot of that that's ingrained, I think, that may not be um, explicitly understood by a lot of us.
1: Yeah, there's a, actually a rabbit trail here that I don't want to go down, but I just want to say it because at some point we might want to do this and talk about this, is that it makes me wonder that we've talked about in the past, Tom and I have, and, and other folks that the people who seem to succeed and be really good at network engineering come out of customer support, electronics, things like that. Maybe that's because those people developed the internal architectural bearings and the idea of big picture stuff and the discipline around putting uh, putting structure around networking. Because one thing about networking is there was a, a time when I was working with a big customer and we said, they said, we want your top six escalation engineers or whatever it was to come in. I think it was four and design a new network for us. And a friend of mine said, yeah, you'll have one person riding and four people erasing, because there's a million different ways of doing everything. And unless you have the structure and the architecture, the structure of something like an architecture in your head, you're not going to succeed because there's a million different ways of doing everything.
0: Well, that's where I go back to the architecture side. Um, it, it's no different than determining a network architecture for your physical infrastructure. And and these days, virtual infrastructure, the cloud, how does the cloud integrate with what you have physically? Because yeah, a lot of stuff's virtual, but somewhere there has to be real hardware running this stuff. That's right. So, so there is an architecture that you've created for how your network is designed. Why don't we apply those same principles in determining an architecture for network automation and apply that to the network?
2: I think one of the interesting things that's happened because designing networks is different than troubleshooting and, and deploying them. Like they're just, they're almost entirely different skill sets in my opinion and uh, probably the same. It will definitely is the same in software architecture. And so I think one of the problems that we have come into is a lot of us became very enthusiastic because we saw the promise and the possibilities of automation. Um, but it's, it's a that being enthusiastic about it is not the same thing as having the right mindset and knowing how to how to think in abstractions and things like that. And you know all the enthusiasm doesn't actually confer the skill. Um, I, I, and, and it's not to say that we can't obtain it, but we have to go beyond figuring out how to do things faster and with a better playbook and with a better uh, you know a better template. We have to think at the level that you're talking about, Terry. and and we have to pull up, we have to tear ourselves away from the templates and the Python scripts for a minute to, to say, how does this integrate with a business? And I think that's I think that's where the whole industry is right now. I think some people are starting to see that we need to start thinking that way. Um, and so I, th- I think it'll get better, but I think our roots of kind of get it done, make it happen. I agree with everything we've been saying so far.
0: Yeah, you need to step back and take a look at, at network and network automation as a system.
3: Yeah. the. Uh, the automation architecture is the, is the mylar overlay on the physical architecture you know if i were to go way way back before uh before we had layers in the uh, cad <laughs> programs so yeah and and tom that was an incredibly kind way to say what you said um all the enthusiasm <laughs> does not necessarily confer the skills i think i i, I got that mostly right
1: so yeah yeah so In architecture, Terry, you talk about a five-phase model and automation maturity. Talk to us a little bit about, see, you have five phases. I don't know what to do with this. I mean, there's five, there's seven, (laughs) there's four, there's six. Like, what are we doing here?
3: Keeping it prime, you know?
1: There
0: are are different models with with different number of them, but... The end goal is you can determine where your organization fits in the maturity models and it, it's all driven by things we've done in the past, you know, software methodologies, uh, development models. And th- this sort of modeling has been applied to a variety of aspects of software development, networking, and stuff like that. We need to apply the same thing to network automation are you doing no auto, are you, are you doing manual automation at this point you're just starting out you're thinking about it you you're learning about single source of truth and and determining well what would that be like what what tools do i need to make that happen well you're not thinking at that point about the end goal the end goal down the road the number 5 thing might be totally autonomous operation where an automated system is able to discern a network failure and take appropriate action to work around that failure or identify what it's down due to that failure so that humans could then come in and and take action. So you're not going to make that jump from, we're just thinking about it and it's all manual to fully autonomous operation in one fell swoop. You're going to take steps along the way. What are those steps?
2: So, and, can you tell us? Can you just tell us real quick, Terry, and your in your thinking, the rep model you're referencing? What are the steps?
0: Well, Joel King put it together, and I actually don't have it in front of me right now. Oh, Sorry. <laughs> let me let me get back to you I'm, on that one.
3: I'm, you you talk, and I'll pull up the slides, Terry. I'll find
2: I'll it yourself. <laughs>
0: thank, thank you. <laughs>
2: I think it would be really uh, interesting to hear the concrete, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Too.
0: Yeah, so it's it's the manual thing. And then uh, the next phase is you're doing islands of op- automation. So you're automating spe- specific little tasks that you have. Uh, so one of the tasks that that I was associated with at, at Net Craftsman, one of the gentlemen that was working on this put together a set of scripts that went out and verified an installation at a branch. And, and, an organization's branch and they had hundreds of these branches and it allowed the engineers to better do this installation and validate that the installation was done correctly and was operating correctly. But that was not plugged into a a higher level architecture. Mm -hmm. Um, that that was the extent of it was just checking these branches and it was not code that you could actually reuse elsewhere within the organization for checking other stuff. You couldn't check data center stuff with it. It was specific to the branch. Well, what you want to do is you want to move up the, my, the maturity model to the point that you're going, oh, this model for these branches is not a whole lot different than the model for this part of my data center, a pod or a, a set of racks, a, a row of, of racks, that sort of stuff. Why don't I make one set of architecture here that can be applied to both and abstract out the things that are different between one versus the other. So as you work through the maturity model, you start to identify these patterns and begin applying them. Does that make sense?
1: If, if yep. you find the yep. patterns, yes.
0: Yes, you do have to have the patterns. Yeah. Did you find the slide yet, Scott?
1: Yep, yep.
3: You're, you're two for two with uh, phase one, phase two here.
0: So why don't you read off the rest of them?
3: So from, from isolated automation, we move into automation frameworks, right? And Joel cites the, you know, source code management with peer review of processes and having a, a source of truth. He doesn't say single source of truth, but I think that's implied.
0: And I think that's probably one of the biggest hurdles because that's where severe culture change begins to set in.
3: Sure. Then, yeah, it's been, then from that, yeah. Go
2: ahead. I was just going to say the the severe culture change with the source of truth. I agree. I, I feel like I have spent in a couple of different organizations now months getting people to agree on where to put the data, uh, and then like like unreasonable amounts of time trying to say just put it in the same place. <laughs> Once you do, there's a lot of power and flexibility it gives you. But yeah, I that's that that jives with my experience.
0: And so what I took out of Scott's description there was also source code control. Having the the source of truth under co- code control and this whole check-in, check-out process is like, why do I need to do that? I can just make this change in five minutes.
1: And that's discipline. That's largely discipline, again, around more And, the, the and that goes back like, to the culture. Yeah, that goes back to culture, yeah. So there's yep. another one after that, right, Scott, because we should have five.
3: Yeah, so we're only on step three. Step four is end to end automation. Where you have stealth service portal, where I assume requesting services um, and CI/CD processes.
0: OK, right. So so that's where we want to stand up a new server or a, a new application. And it requires this set of servers and they need to communicate with each other, and they use these particular ports for their communication, and they're located in this part of the network. The whole end-to-end automation of putting all that together so that it just works,
3: and then finally, the uh, the be-all and end-all would be the autonomous operations phase, uh, where we. The description is processes extend across multiple technology domains. So this is not just network automation, this is coordination and orchestration of requests for services that would organize and and instantiate services on the network with compute attached to storage, provisioning the right apps in the right places or, or maybe the best places given you know, application characteristics
1: and so forth. Exactly. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Hedge. Join us next week as we continue this fascinating conversation on automation with Terry Slavik.